Hey, thanks for downloading the podcast. And remember, if you want to listen live, download the iHeartRadio app, download the TuneIn app, and just search for Fantasy Sports Radio Network, and you can listen to this program live. Also, if you want to watch the video of this podcast, check us out on YouTube, on Twitch, or on Periscope, and type in, you guessed it, Fantasy Sports Network. You'll find us there. Enjoy the show, and thanks for listening. The Fantasy Sports Radio Network is now going for the green with Daily Roto. Welcome to this week's edition of Going For The Green, presented by Daily Roto. I'm Drew Dinkmar, alongside Colin Drew, recapping the U.S. Open and talking about this week's Travelers Championship at TPC River Highlands. Colin, we are back in our own home locations after a week of DR debauchery and fun celebrating the U.S. Open in in Ocean City. Uh, We had our own golf sweats and our own uh, golf bets going on with, with our action on the course, and it was a uh, it was a fun week in general, but I, I will be honest. I think my body is is glad to be back home and, and back on a normal schedule. Yeah, yeah, it's nice to be back home. Nice to be back on a normal schedule. Definitely was a good trip. A lot of ups and downs. The the low light was taking a seven on mini golf with a six putt from like three feet. I don't think I've recovered from that one yet. I don't know. Like the rest of the DFS week almost didn't even matter once that happened. Yeah, an Ernie Els-esque moment from from Colin, who was clearly the best golfer in real golf on the course when when we went out for our uh, four man scramble, but uh, had some had some putting gifts Ernie Els style on the. Uh, the old pro golf uh, mini course, which I think we all agree was the best mini golf course we've ever played. So if you're in Ocean City, Maryland, uh, old old pro golf, I think is what it was called, was was pretty awesome. But let's let's get back to the U.S. Open and, and the real golf and the in the DFS golf. We had a big week with you know projections. I know for us individually, it, it felt like we were kind of just batting around the, the 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 corner of like really really good teams. It seemed like it was a week that projections and chalk in general did really really well it seems like it was a week that if you were trying to specifically get a little bit contrarian in your lineups that you were punished because so much of of the leaderboard ended up being really popular plays how did the week treat you from from the u.s open's perspective uh the week was okay i think in general obviously i had the ticket to the thunderdome so whether or not i cashed that dictated a lot of the success for my entries um, and I didn't, but we had a six of six team through there and was looking really good heading into the weekend. And uh, just Rose, Fowler, Poulter, uh, you know, just came apart kind of across the course of the day, Saturday and Sunday. And obviously the U.S. Open is one of those weeks where you don't really need to get six of six through if you have the leaderboard and you definitely need to have the top of the leaderboard. There weren't many birdies going around. There weren't many birdie streaks. And so that ended up being a, a losing event for me. But I know you were able to cash with a 5-6 to six team. So obviously that ended up uh, net positive for us overall. Yeah, it was a weird week. I mean, Tiger was my miscut on the 5-6, of six, but had a lot of guys up there. Uh, had Brooks Kepka, had Tony Finau, had Henrik Stenson on that team. Um, so I was able to kind of hang in there. Uh, and it was really strange for me. I got onto my flight on Saturday, and Tony Finau was like T24, had just finished off a great round, and I landed, and he was leading. And it just goes to show what, what Saturday kind of ended up with, with the weather impacts and the weather draw that got out of hand. Uh, but we'd be remiss if, uh, while, while talking about our own failures and successes, um, if we didn't shout out uh, one of our subscribers who won the Millionaire Maker this past week, not not alone, but won it in a tie. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, Daily Sports Geek, I, I know a lot of people follow him on Twitter already, but put together a winning lineup. All six golfers were inside of the top 20. Uh, so his lineup was Paul Casey, Tony Finau, Tommy Fleetwood, Brooks Kepka, Patrick Reed, and Henrik Stenson. So he had one, two, four, five, six, and 16. Definitely a really strong lineup overall. I know one of the things that I've talked to him about golf a good bit over the last three or four years, and he always preaches avoiding dupes as one of like the first things he tries to do. So I know he was kind of laughing and kicking himself as much as you can kick yourself for winning 575K for putting together a lineup that duplicate 
another guy in the tournament. So, uh, but it was awesome week. You know, I, if there, there is an article up, if you want to kind of dive into how he leveraged our projections to put together the winning lineup kind of goes through that. Um, but his core went absolutely nuts and it was a core that came all from guys who were inside the top 20 values over at daily Roto at the projections that we have there. And it was one of those times where you kind of are kicking yourself. I definitely got off Tommy Fleetwood because of ownership and had a ton of Paul Casey, but daily sports geeks lineups had, he had 81% Paul Casey, 52% Tommy Fleetwood, 48% of Stenson, Finau and Brooks and then 43% of Rose and 38% of DJ. So he was all over the leaderboard in the Millionaire Maker. Um, I looked, I think he had four lineups in the top 250 and another three inside of the top 500. And he all put together, I think it was 21 or 22 teams. So his core went absolutely nuts. And when that happens, then you just need one iteration to come through. And Patrick Reed at 9% ownership ended up being the guy that separated him Definitely at one of those hindsight, like you read the article or you look at his teams and you're like, I, I could have done that. I could have put those together. <laughs> I had a couple up there late in the day, um, but I kind of needed some some long shot like a like a, a burger had in one two finish or something. But it was a, a fun week all the same. And obviously huge congrats and shout out to Brandon, the Daily Sports Geek. Uh, I think it's his second score of this size in the past few years of dfs golf so really good player yeah that's that's an incredible feat and it was one of those weeks where you know it it shows that you can still play chalk um you just need to play it in either a more condensed fashion or kind of pivot on on one and i know some of the guys he had there like patrick reed was the low, lower owned guy that came through but he also had some exposure like trey molinex on the lower end side who didn't who didn't come through obviously but um, showing that he was taking some stances on some contrarian plays as well within uh, slamming some of that chalk. So um, congrats to Brandon. Obviously a huge score and uh, really happy for him. And um, anybody that you know uh, uses any of our products and, and has some success with it, it's awesome to see. Uh, let's talk about the actual golfers on the course and who had the big scores there. Brooks Kepka winning his second consecutive U.S. Open. And I, I said this on the pod last week that I thought – you know, the, just the way that he was talking about his game had me really intrigued. And I'm usually not kind of a sucker for this stuff because oftentimes guys will always, you know, oftentimes at the beginning of seasons and other sports you'll hear guys are in the best shape of their lives or you'll hear people talk about how they feel their game's in a good spot. Like Tiger always says his game is in a good spot. Phil always says his game is in a good spot. But Kepka, man, the dude was just talking with so much confidence. And even after the third round interviews, he basically said, I don't believe anybody out there in the field is as confident as I am. And he played like it the whole way. He didn't complain about the weather or any of the draw stuff. Um, neither did DJ, to DJ's credit, either. Um, and those guys got a very, very difficult end of the draw. And while those guys you know, were battling for the top spot, he had Phil with his mini-golf shenanigans out there, putting around like a four-year-old, um, what was your what was your instinct when you saw the the Phil putts? Because I know we were traveling that day. I didn't see him until I got home that night, and I couldn't I couldn't even imagine what I would have thought if I had been watching that live. I was like, oh, I should have done that on the mini golf course and taken a two stroke <laughs> penalty. <laughs> it would have saved me, you know. No, it was crazy. I, I I was just mind blown. And then for so first of all, just the action itself was hilarious and. Uh, and then, like, afterwards, the way he tried to downplay it, like, it was some strategic move to to save, you know, the number of shots he was taking versus just kind of owning up to the fact that he kind of got owned by the course and was frustrated. And I don't know. It was crazy. There's no way he strategically put that much thought into it as far as the number of strokes penalty. And then, obviously, all of, like, the, the kind of old-school golf media is, like, he embarrassed the course, he embarrassed the tournament. I don't know. I mean, it, I think everyone kind of got a good chuckle out of it. He's definitely like a, a shady car salesman with his excuses for why. But that was, those were kind of my takeaways from Phil's shenanigans. Well, the thing that I can believe is if you are saying that you strategically did this to take the two-stroke penalty, like you're playing in a game that is supposed to be modeling itself off of integrity and character and not like angle shooting. Like that's not supposed to be what you do. But we've seen it's an insider trading, Phil. And, yeah, you know. <laughs> a sprinkler head, Phil. I mean, we we, we have a, a lot of insight into what Phil's you know goals are. If if his story holds merit, like if he's, I just can't believe you'd put that out there 
Instead of like, yeah, you know, I just, I lost my cool. I lost my mind out there for a second and, and it just got away from me. Like, yeah, I, I can't believe that wasn't the response. And the response was like, no, I've been planning to do this for a while. And I figured this was my best opportunity. Like, what are you talking about? Tell it was me. also, I, it was also hilarious because he marked the ball after he missed the, <laughs> the, the like tap back. Like, okay, I'm going to mark my ball. You know, now I'm going to make this putt. So that was, that was funny too. Yeah, what a what a wild weekend. And obviously, um, one of the big influencers of the final leaderboard was that weather draw on, on Saturday. And we talked about there being a potential weather draw during the course of the week. And it, it did play out that way, uh, where the guys that were able to go off a.m., p.m., Thursday a.m., Friday p.m., had a little bit of a weather advantage uh, on the field. But Saturdays uh, were just incredible. I know N- Nelson Adcock, who runs uh, Cut Sweats, uh, was a participant in our Slack chat, and he was dropping in some strokes gained um, adjusted by skill based on the waves, and he had the Saturday a.m. groups going off about four strokes easier than the, the, the late afternoon groups, the last groups off the tee. So a guy like Tommy Fleetwood, who really kind of took it in the ch- on the chin on Saturday and then came back with that incredible round on Sunday, actually was the guy that Nelson had pegged with his math as the, the player who had gained the most strokes tee to green when you skill adjust and weather adjust uh, the scenarios. So uh, Tommy Fleetwood made that late charge at the end. I know it kept kind of the, the, whole, the whole back nine on Sunday pretty entertaining because the pressure was on Kepka, regardless of how the other players were doing around him to kind of hold his score. Um, were, were there any big takeaways for you in terms of the performances of, of the leaderboard? Because it was, a, it was a strange leaderboard in the sense that it was all really good golfers, but most of the name golfers that like will draw people into the U.S. Open, Tiger Woods, uh, Jordan Spieth, Rory McIlroy, were not there. So it was, it was like, for diehard golf fans, I think it was an unbelievable leaderboard, but for, like, casual golf fans might not have been the strongest leaderboard for them. Yeah, yeah, it was an exceptional leaderboard, but lacked kind of the, it had star power, but it lacked sort of the American star power that I'm sure the TV networks and stuff were looking for. I think that um, other thing was Daniel Berger was one of the guys who got the biggest kind of benefit of the draw, and so all, although he did still have a strong finish anyways, it was definitely influenced by having the good draw in rounds one and two and then the great draw on uh, Saturday, obviously, when he shot that four under to kind of pop up the leaderboard. Uh, Kind of the takeaway for me is that I think when we've talked about weather a lot in the past, um, you know, you're kind of looking at the conditions and you're thinking if it gets like to like 15, 20 miles per hour, that's where it starts to be impactful. But like a a 10 mile per hour split in wind um, isn't like, it's not a massive amount of wind if the course is playing reasonably, but if the course is playing exceptionally hard, then all of a sudden that massive amount of wind does become a much bigger factor. And so you saw that with some really good shots on Saturday in the wind, kind of getting knocked a tiny bit offline and then really punished by tough pin positions. And then when the Sunday weather kind of had the same splits, uh, but didn't quite have the same impact because the pins were kind of put in the middle of the greens. And I think it's one of the things that I would love it if there was some weather kicking up this week, just because I think people would overrate it based on what happened last week, um, because it it's not going to be a U.S. Open setup this week. And and they're not always going to put pins as tough as the USGA likes to. And so I think that um, that's another thing that sometimes in thinking about wind and weather impact, uh, I just think about it like macro as far as whether or not to make an adjustment. But it really should be a course by course, event by event thing that you want to take into consideration. Yeah. And I think the thing, the takeaway for me was also the fact that, you know, we when we talk about weather, usually on, on these podcasts or any other content we're producing through the course of the week, you're usually talking about Thursday and Friday weather. And now with the advent of showdown slates and weekend, more weekend golf slates and different things like that, I think it's something that you need to be managing and taking into account and consideration when you're building your lineups uh, for those individual showdown slates. Because obviously it made a huge impact on Saturday, and that's probably the widest impact we'll see all year long, is my guess. So, you know, now might not be the greatest time to reinforce that message, as you said, it might uh, cause people to overvalue it a little bit. But it is something that, you know, with the advent of new game types, uh, we should be taking into consideration. Let's close the chapter on the U.S. Open and move forward to the Travelers Championship uh, at TPC River Highlands. A par 70, 6,841 yards, one of the shortest courses on tour. Um, by nature, you know, approach shots are valued a little bit slightly less. 
um, two fewer par five approaches, but the leaderboards over the years have had a mix of strong approach and around the green play, especially last year you saw uh, Jordan Spieth, a guy who, you know, in the midst of, uh, has had a great approach season this year, but last year a little bit more um, of the around the green play. It's, uh, it's an interesting course because some of the guys who have course history here are not guys that immediately I would think of as dominating short courses like Bubba Watson. I think that's a really strange one. Um, but what what are your takeaways in preparation for the Travelers Championship this week? Yeah, and I think, like you said, the course fit is sort of a tough one to figure out because you look at some of the leaderboards from the previous years and you see a bunch of guys up top who were getting there with their short game. And obviously, Spieth had that hole out from the bunker. Uh, so that was pretty awesome, really big highlight of his season last year. And um, I think in general, I'm not going to evaluate course fit too much one of the things we were talking about in slack the other week is it's definitely something i don't really take into account especially with the upper tier golfers because so many so many of them have balanced games but i do think there's some more merit to it with the value players where they're not an elite player partially because you know they don't have well-rounded games but they might have really good traits um, like maybe they're not long off the tee so they can't gain strokes off the tee but uh, they they can you know keep it together at some of the shorter tracks and so that's i guess where i would be looking for course fit type stuff a little bit more is with the value guy as opposed to trying to separate like you know speed from rory from brooks yeah. just based on course fit yeah and as you were kind of having that conversation i thought that was an interesting point to consider the course fit being more valuable for players at the lower end of the the talent spectrum I think of, you know, because I play all the D different DFS sports, I think of value in golf very differently than I think of it in, you know, basketball or baseball or football. I think the first thing we often look at when associating a value with a player is, in other sports is their matchup. And so you would look to see, you know, do they face a weak opposing defense or in the case of baseball, are they facing a weak opposing pitcher? Are they in a park that might inflate their power statistics and different things like that? And in golf, you know, you don't, the matchup that people try to, to figure out is how a player fits to the individual course. And I do think there's some value at the lower end, as you said, of the pricing spectrum with trying to identify those things. But in general, the way that I think about matchups and value in, in daily fantasy golf is just a, a player's price relative to the strength of the field in general. And so one of the guys that like jumped out to me this week on DraftKings in, in their pricing in particular was the fact that Jason Day is being priced differently than all these other guys. And so for me, Jason Day starts to pop as like an immense value because he's so much cheaper than I think he should be. And yeah, I think you can probably gain some points on the field in terms of evaluating course fit with some of the lower end guys. But I think in general, what most people out there are trying to do in terms of matchup analysis is they're trying to figure out that course fit. So for me, I'm much more into, and we've talked about this throughout the course of the history of this pod, uh, long-term adjusted round scores and that helps uh, create relative valuation to players and then their price point relative to the field. So it's a little bit different from the way that I look at matchups in golf compared to how others with, with course fit. And I think your point brought a little bit more context to the way that I should think about it, which is at the lower end of the pricing spectrum, some guys who just have imbalanced games might be, and they don't have the opportunity because they're at the lower end of the pricing spectrum, they don't have the opportunity to pick their events as strongly that they might be more variants at uh, different skill levels at different events uh, due to fit. Yeah, and I, I think, uh, like you said, kind of the guys who are new on tour, they just have to play whenever they can get a chance so they can try to make some money and keep their tour card or get their tour card if they don't have one. And uh, I do know that for some of the guys who are more experienced who don't want to play quite as many rounds, but maybe they're not quite up to an elite level, I do know that they, they do think about the types of courses and sometimes they'll skip an event like Doral if they don't think that they can contend because it's not really worth the energy and and kind of grinding out like a 50 or 60k paycheck doesn't mean quite as much to to them at their at certain points of their careers and so I think that there's probably some merit to course fit I know data golf's done a lot of analysis that shows that it's really marginal um, I, I don't know how much of that you know carved out away maybe the top tier elite guys and if it would still come through there um, so like I said it's not something i go overboard with more of a tie break thing i think i tend to think about matchups relative to price like you i tend to think course history is always priced in on DraftKings, anyways so there's not a lot of value that you're getting out of that even if it was a thing 
And then I think the other way I think about matchups is just relative to ownership. So if you're looking at Jason Day and Paul Casey and, you know, Casey was going to be 20 percent and Day was going to be 10 percent. Like, is Casey really going to be minus 200 versus Day and head to head? No, probably not. So Day is probably the better play in tournaments. Just pretty simple when it's that wide of a discrepancy. Not that that will necessarily come to fruition come Wednesday, but uh, it definitely gets more complex when you have maybe a guy like Grio who's totally mispriced in the range that he's in um and you're trying to balance like what level of chalkiness is eventually you have to admit that he becomes a bad play at a certain point but like where is that you yeah. know where is that seesaw and where does it kind of tip yeah well let's talk about the course history for this event uh you mentioned paul casey there he has had uh, three top 10 finishes uh, of late bubba who you know miscut last year but has won this event twice has you know two other top fives and a, a couple other top tens. Uh, Mark Leishman, who's seven for seven in, in cuts made here in, in his appearances with a win. Uh, Ryan Moore, who was one of the guys that jumped out to me as priced differently immediately. And it seems like Ryan Moore has a few courses uh, over the course of the last few months that we've seen where his price just gets aggressively increased based on course history. He's only missed one cut in 10 plus events here and he has five top tens, incredible course history. Uh, Brandon Steele, top 25 and six to seven events here. Um, that's really strong performances for Brandon Steele as well, uh, making cuts in six to seven, but to be top 25 in those six to seven. And as you mentioned, DraftKings seems to take that account in their pricing. Uh, we see some of these discrepancies between DraftKings and FanDuel, where like Ryan Moore is the 11th most expensive golfer on DraftKings, but the 21st most on FanDuel. Charlie Hoffman, another guy who has decent course history as well, 14th on DraftKings compared to 23rd on FanDuel. So if you're going to play and value these course history guys, you're more likely to get better uh, value on them on a site like FanDuel than you are on DraftKings, which seems to take it into account in their pricing. Yeah, that, and that was definitely an astute point. Um, I know that FanDuel does kind of align with Vegas odds the same way DK does, but DK definitely seems to have a course history bump that's maybe even on top of the Vegas odds bump or whatever it is in their algorithm. Um, Got to tell you, man, it's always terrifying. It's a little scary when you come into a week, you pull up the course history stuff to take a look at it, and you see it's a Bubba Watson course history week. Those those are scary. He he definitely is one of the guys that, in the back of your mind, you're like, okay, I don't really believe in course history, but Bubba, oh, man. But the ownership, it'll be there. So Yeah, he's, got, he's got the Masters. He's got uh, Genesis, I believe, is the other one that he has had multiple wins on. And frankly, the Travelers just does not seem to fit. I mean, fewer par fives, uh, distance less of an issue. Just it seems like a strange fit for for it to really make a big deal with Bubba. But yeah, we've got him back priced up in the high eights, somewhere we haven't seen him in quite a while. He's coming off of some disappointing performances, uh, obviously missed the cut at the U.S. Open. And uh, early projected ownership certainly still has him as, as one of the more popular guys. But let's start to break this down by pricing tiers. We'll start on DraftKings, and then we'll transition into FanDuel a little bit towards the end here. At the very top of the pricing spectrum in on DraftKings, we've got, you know, five guys priced uh, 10000 or above this week. Justin Thomas leading the way, 11500 followed by Brooks Kepka 11-3, Roy McIlroy, 10-9, Jordan Spieth, 10-6, and Patrick Reed, 10000 even. I know last week when we were talking about the U.S. Open, we felt that the top tiers were generally priced pretty efficiently. We thought ownership was going to be pretty efficient, but it seems like whether stacks kind of played a role, especially in higher stakes tournaments and lowering ownership on a guy like Dustin Johnson. Uh, this week, how do you feel about the pricing and how do you feel about early ownership projections amid the top tier? I think the pricing is decently efficient. Um, I know one of the things, obviously, Brooks Kepka got priced way up off of the win last week. Um, I know that we have him maybe a little bit below Rory and, and Spieth and maybe closer to maybe even below Day and Casey. But I know also he did have kind of buried in that data. He had some lingering wrist issues, and those have obviously been resolved. Um, he was an interesting one because if you did think last week was going to be an approach you know, and off the tee driven thing, he actually doesn't have good strokes gained approach stats, but he finished first in the field and approach. So that's another reason where kind of digging into too much of the individual strokes gained stuff can get a little bit dangerous. But I think the pricing seems like it's kind of mostly efficient. Um, I'm not sure where ownership's going to shake out. Um, I'm guessing it'll be decently efficient as well. I could see um, Brooks and Rory maybe getting lost a tiny bit in the shuffle and maybe 
I, I would say in general this year, people have not went back to the well to somebody after a win and, and back them in DFS to back up their win. And so I think Brooks maybe gets low owned because of that. Could see Rory off of another disappointing performance and then not quite sure what to make of Spieth, Reed, Day, and Casey. I think Spieth's getting some chatter now, but some of that's just driven off of the course history and won't actually be where people want to go with their lineups. Yeah, my instinct when I first looked at all this pricing was that, man, uh, the next tier is where I'm a little bit more excited to take advantage because it has one of our favorites in Paul Casey at 9,600 and above him, Jason Day at 9,800. And Day, you know, for the last month or so after he kind of put together that really strong run, he was priced more like Rory or Spieth at, at these kind of levels. And to see him come all the way down to 9,800, obviously a disappointing performance last week at the U.S. Open. But on a course that from data golf's metrics, um, you know, slight advantage to around the green play in terms of the percentage of, of strokes gained in, in the past. That would seem to be a decent course for Jason Day, who is just masterful around the greens. And this price really stands out to me, but I know early ownership projections aren't super high on Day. I'm a little bit perplexed. Uh, did that surprise you when kind of running the early ownership projection numbers? Um, I, it did a tiny bit. It's just, it's early. And I try not to put too much stock into numbers until Wednesday. And I try not to fall in love with plays until Wednesday either, yeah. just because I do weigh ownership as one of the heaviest factors in my decision-making. So I would expect day comes up a little bit. I know in general right now, I'm a little high on the the higher price guys. And so some of those numbers will come down. I was hoping at the beginning of the week, maybe people wouldn't see this as a, as a Justin Thomas course. Um, I think he's a lot more balanced than maybe people give him credit for. And people lean, think about him more as a bomber, but he's really solid all around in all of the different skill aspects, but it seems like the ownership is going to be there. I agree. I think the kind of the optimal way to build, if you're just trying to maximize odds, getting six to six, which seems like a good thing to do this week, much more so than last week, then starting with the day or Casey or starting with day and Casey definitely seems um, like ownership agnostic, the, the right way to go to me. Yeah, below those guys, you've got Bryson DeChambeau, who, again, his his surge this year has priced him into a different class of golfers than long-term projection systems might uh, put him in, and it seems like ownership keeps following Bryson, so it's a little bit of a challenging path uh, for projection systems. Mark Leishman at 9,300, Webb Simpson at 9,100, and then Ryan Moore at 9,000. And if people are going to play Ryan Moore course history, at 9,000, um, I'm probably going to be light Ryan Moore and maybe even a zero. Um, I'll I'll take my Ryan Moore exposure on over to FanDuel, where I think you know maybe ownership will come with it, but I don't think it'll be substantially different than what's over at DraftKings, and I think you'll get a much better price point on FanDuel. Yeah, I think you will get a better price point. I think the ownership will be about the same. Um, we got them pretty high right now. I think that number will come down a little bit, but it seems like with that strong course history, 20% seems like kind of the floor. So even if it comes down, he's it's not going to be in a way that he's not chalk, I don't think. Uh, the way I look at Ryan Moore is that he's kind of the exact same golfer as Zach Johnson to yeah. me. The skill sets... <laughs> The, the kind of ball flight, the distance. Um, Zach Johnson, if anything, has kind of a better pedigree in general. Um, I think, you know, maybe over the past uh, 12 or 18 months, maybe more has, you know, outperformed ZJ a little bit. But if you even if you just look at, you know, the strokes gain metrics, you know, kind of off the tee, they're both kind of gaining half a shot or so. And then on approach, um, they're both gaining kind of half a shot around the green, around a third of a shot, and then kind of break even putters. So I think Moore has been a little bit better. Maybe it deserves to be a tiny bit higher, but if I can kind of get the the discount version of Ryan Moore in Zach Johnson at a lower price, lower ownership, then that seems like a easier pivot for me. Um, and then just in general, if someone's going to soak up 20%, I know like Webb Simpson seems like a better option than Ryan Moore. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe those ownerships will balance out, though. Even if they were the same 20% each, I'd go with Webb. Yeah, I feel the same way. I feel like Webb has established himself at a different tier of golfer than Ryan Moore. And honestly, of, of most of those guys in the 9Ks outside of Day and Casey, who to me seem like they're in a different class 
than the rest of the 9K guys. Uh, Webb, I would say, you know, maybe maybe Bryson has played at his level this year. Uh, Leishman maybe a little bit below, but those guys would be clearly ahead of Ryan Moore from from a pure skill set to me. The 8,000s is an interesting range. It includes Daniel Berger at the top, followed by Bubba Watson, Charlie Hoffman, Xander Shoffley, uh, Billy Horschel, then Patrick Cantley, Brian Harmon, Zach Johnson, Brant Snedeker, J.B. Holmes, and Russell Knox. It's a tier that on most weeks, most of these guys seem to settle in the sevens. Um, there's some guys in this tier who have popped up on different weeks before, like Bubba Watson and Daniel Berger and Xander Shoffley. But guys like Billy Horschel and Brian Harmon and Zach Johnson and Brant Snedeker have spent most of their year priced in the sevens. And the guy who stands out to me, he always stands out for data golf projections, is Patrick Cantlay, who at 8400 I think has been priced above most of the guys around him here, he's been throughout the year priced above like Daniel Berger, Charlie Hoffman, um, Bubba. There's been times where Bubba's been priced more aggressively, but definitely Billy Horschel. I was surprised to see Cantlay at around 8400 here. He feels like a guy that should be priced closer to that Ryan Moore, Webb Simpson range, maybe a little bit below Webb. Um, he looks like a, a really good value, but also somebody that the market looks to be on early. Yeah, he's definitely going to be owned. Uh, I think he shot a 60 here, which might be the second best round. I know Furyk Carter is 58 at this event, and Cantley 60. So I don't know. Our, our, some subscribers have trouble with Patrick Cantley and, and rationalizing his performance and think he's underperforming on the year, but I, I disagree with that. I think he's been performing well. I think a $9,000 price tag would be more than fair, and I'd be considering him at that level. As it is, 8,400, maybe 20 to 25% ownership, projected ownership, could get higher in some formats, but that's a large field GPP number. I think he's still in play at 25% projected ownership. I don't think that the pivots are that comparable to him, yeah. and so I'm, I'm willing to pay a little bit of an ownership premium uh there are a couple of guys like that it'll just depend kind of where the ownership shake out zj and sneds i could see at if they end up single digits like sub five percent i could see myself being interested there and i know i dismissed daniel Berger's u.s open performance a little bit just as far as receiving the benefit of the win draw in his sort of outlier high-end performance but i think it was uh, in general it was still a solid performance for him in that field and i think that um he, he could get maybe not completely lost, but he could get lost a tiny bit sandwiched between Moore and Bubba. I think he's still in play um, along with, you know, a bunch of these guys are, are in play. I guess the, the ones that maybe wouldn't be would be probably not going to have a lot of Billy Horschel and probably not going to have um, very much J.B. Holmes, just because I do think J.B. Holmes maybe is one of those guys I think about course fit for a little bit. Yeah, when you, when you talk about course fit and you talk about shorter courses, I immediately thought of Brant Snedeker and Zach Johnson, guys who, um, you know, if they can, if, if you can get them into uh, having wedges in their hand, usually have been really good, and obviously Brant really good around the greens. I'm kind of interested in both of those guys seeing where the, the ownership uh, projections fall. Below the 8K range in the $7,000 range, usually the range where, you know, you, you have kind of your money makers, uh, you can differentiate this week. This feels like one of the the, the most clear-cut, obvious value plays that we've had in the 7K range in a long time that's going to come with a lot of ownership, and it's Emiliano Grillo at 7,700. I don't think there's a lot separating a guy like Grillo from, you know, Patrick Cantlay or Charlie Hoffman or those guys priced in kind of the eights, and he's priced in the sevens. I think he's going to be one of the more popular plays on the entire slate. He kind of opens up a lot of salary relief. A lot of these other names in the sevens are guys that have usually been in the high sixes during the course of the year, the really low sevens, and so they don't come with the same kind of um, stability that you feel like you have in, in Emiliano Grillo. And Grillo is you know, a guy that's really solid to green, will also kind of pop in all the strokes gain models as well. He looks to me like a clear-cut strong value, but also one that's going to carry immense ownership. Yeah, like him and Cantlay are definitely popular ways to go. I think they're the optimal plays too. So take that for what it is. Um, it's just in tournaments, it's just a question of ownership. But cash games, uh, like definitely would just be putting Cantlay and Grio in, and then um, I, I'm not sure exactly where I'll land in tournaments. He, he they're going to get so high owned in like smaller field tournament formats that I think pivots are probably warranted. But just for perspective. 
think that we have him around 34% to T20. And I think we have Mark Leishman around 34% to T20 for about $1,500 more in salary cap space. So that's how underpriced he is relative to this field. That's why I think the ownership can only go up. And that's why it's going to be a really, a really big struggle just because he does project so much better than the pivots. Yeah, some of the pivots, and it seems like the 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 options in the 7K range are just a little bit thinner, so some of the pivots are even getting condensed a little bit. But like Russell Henley uh, had that good early performance at the U.S. Open, um, has some decent course history here as well. I believe he's you know 7600. Brandon Steele, who was kind of popular in the U.S. Open as a potential sub 7000 value play because of his length. Uh, 7600. Adam Hadwin is a guy that might get lost a little bit in the shuffle, and it's kind of one of these things where Hadwin was popular earlier in the year when he was kind of on a roll. He's, you know, stumbled a little bit of late, hasn't been playing his best golf, missed back-to-back cuts before that, you know, two uh, made cuts, but outside the top 50. He is still priced where he's been priced all year, whereas a lot of these guys in the 7000s are guys that have been in the sixes. Uh, Adam Hadwin's been mid 7,000s pretty much all year. He's he's here at 7,500. I think of him as you know a good a good putter, a guy that can save strokes around the green, and a guy who's pretty good on the approach, but not super long. Not a short guy, but not super long. So I would think the course fit here would be okay. So if he's one of these guys as a pivot that comes with low ownership, I'm kind of interested in Hadwin. Yeah, and it's it's definitely nice because he's got kind of that balance game too, and um, can kind of pick you up in a couple of different areas if something's not clicking, and kind of looking for made cut at that point. I think we've got him around sixty percent to make the cut, which seems like a nice value um, and really low ownership projection. So it would be a nice guy as a complementary play uh, to the chalk, or if you're trying to pivot off of it. Um, I think that you know Russell Henley is kind of another one of those guys who can go pretty low. Uh, in a given round, it seems like each event, and he was doing it at the U.S. Open for a little bit before falling off. And um, I think that his ownership is going to be a little bit higher, but we we like him quite a bit as well. And then you kind of get down to another one of the chalk players that we like in Chess and Hadley, and another guy that is going to pop in all of the strokes gain models, especially the the ones that are focusing a little bit more on approach this week and probably going to end up 10 to 15 percent owned, if not higher there. Um, unfortunately, a week where it feels like, you know, at least with some of these areas where liking the chalk even or loving the chalk. Um, but but beyond that, you know, I'd say there's there's probably um, five or ten names going from Siwoo Kim to Kevin Streelman to Bo Hostler that kind of all seem similar to me. And it, it's like the kind of like the Domin situation from the other week where we I, like Siwoo, I think we like fine. I think we have him rated as a decent play, but if the ownership and, and I know Mayo's talked him up, if the ownership goes there, then I, like all these other plays are, they're the same to me. I don't really, I don't, I don't have a, a love for Siwoo. I don't, I don't have to yell Siwoo Kim. <laughs> So I can just pivot. Yeah, I think uh, I think Hostler is a guy that caught my attention immediately because he's been priced a little bit more aggressively at most events. Um, he obviously has ridden an incredible putter through the course of the season, and that's always something that we're going to be a little bit skeptical on. But as we've seen with guys like Jason Day, some of these guys are just incredible putters that can carry it over season over season. Hosler's done it event over event. It seems like uh, if he comes in with really low projected ownership, this is a week where finally the price is at a level that I feel more comfortable with that I'll probably get in on some Bo Hosler. And then one of the guy that early in the season was priced a little bit more aggressively, but has not backed up really strong early season performances here into the summer months um, but has, you know, grinded out six cuts in a row at this event. Uh, Chez Reeve, who's just 7,200, I think he's a little bit underpriced relative to where we've seen him during the course of the season. I think he's been priced more along the lines of guys that are priced ahead of him, like Brandon Steele, uh, like Austin Cook, uh, like Russell Henley, those guys. And now he's down at 7,200. And it doesn't seem like, it seems like Hadley will foster more of the attention down there. So I think Chez Reeve is an, is an interesting pivot. When we get below the 7,000 range, or actually one guy I should mention at 7,000, Pat Perez. What are we going to do with Pat Perez? Because Data Golf projections, you know, really like that that long-term adjusted round scores that he's had. He posted, he went through just a streak towards the end of last season, the beginning of this season, where he made like 20 plus cuts in a row, was just in tremendous form. Now he's priced down at 7,000, way below where he's been. 
Um, most of the year finished 36th last week at the U.S. Open, so not a, not a poor event there, but just hasn't flashed any high-end upside of late. Are you back aboard the Pat Perez train this week? Um, uh, man, I, I was excited when you said you weren't going to go below 7,000 because <laughs> I didn't want to go below 7,000. I see nothing there, but I get I got less excited when you said Pat Perez, <laughs> and he is popping his value. He's going to be sub-5% owned, and... It just depends how many teams I build. If I build one, yeah. probably not going to be comfortable with it, but I'll probably build 20. That's, you know, usually how I roll. And so I'll probably have some Pat Perez shares. Um, doesn't take a lot in MME events to get really overweight. Doesn't have to do a lot at his price tag. And he does generally have a balanced game. You know, he, he doesn't rely on one particular skill set. Uh, seems like a misprice. I definitely don't like him quite as much as the fantasy model does. Um, but yeah, even the finished probability model has him as a really steady bet to make the cut. Uh, I think, you know, Bill Haas was another one of those yeah. kind of names that you can think about as like, hasn't done like anything super noteworthy of late, but another name that you've kind of trust and to make the cut. And if, if you're going to get like Haas, Zach Johnson types at 3%, like there's not that big of a discrepancy in their skill set and games compared to Ryan Moore, at least, at least in my eyes. Yeah. I it's, it's a price tag that just sucks me back in with Pat Perez. And especially if there, there's not going to be ownership to follow it. Um, let's what about train. Jim Furyk? Oh, Furyk, my man. He hung he hung around at the U.S. Open. Uh, we, we we're supposed to bet him to T20, and we now waved that. And, yeah, and then he was there. Your now wave on the T20 went way better than mine. My mine was Matthew Fitzpatrick <laughs> that we we ended up canceling the the bet that the model suggested on Fitzpatrick. Uh, Fitzpatrick was the guy that I had basically now waved on the pod as being not long enough, not consistently accurate enough off the tee. And then he played great last week. And Furyk was kind of hanging around all week as well as, you know, a shorter, more accurate guy. Uh, this would seem to be a course that would fit well. Obviously, he shot 58 here. Um, I don't know. You know, for old time's sake, I'll probably include him in my MME mix. But I probably <laughs> would be a guy that would make to uh, would make my, my cut on three max or single entry GPPs. Yeah, that's fair. It's probably probably one of the the guys I have a soft spot for, and it's just you see him there at the U.S. Open, and you're like, you know, ooh, I know it's only a three round sample, but the fact that he's there on this course, maybe yeah. I should sneak him into a lineup or two. But you've had good, you've got a strong Furyk touting this year as well for course fit. You've hit one for one in terms 100%. of in terms of a Furyk uh, made cut. Let's transition over to Fanduel, give Fanduel some love and. And some time on on uh, on this episode here of, of going for the green with Daily Roto, the top of the pri- pricing is a little bit different on Fanduel. So while you've got uh, Justin Thomas leading the way uh, on DraftKings, he is the second highest priced golfer on Fanduel after Brooks Kepka. So Brooks Kepka gets that big U.S. Open bump. Jason Day, who is priced as the sixth highest on DraftKings, is the third highest on Fanduel. So the guys you get a little bit more value on on FanDuel up at the top compared to on DraftKings, Jordan Spieth a little bit cheaper relative to the way he's priced on DraftKings. And then a lot of those guys that are in the nines on DraftKings are up over 11, and they're not very much differently priced than the Day, Rory, Spieth group. So you've got like Paul Casey, Mark Leishman, Daniel Berger all over 11K. And it's 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 an issue that it seems to be condensing some of the you know the projections towards building these really big stars and scrubs type lineups on FanDuel simply because that second tier of guys on DraftKings is all pushed up almost into basically the first tier on FanDuel. Yeah, it's definitely a, a struggle from a macro perspective to think about it because you have that aspect which is probably like optimal is to build stars in scrubs teams for lack of a better description for it especially if you're entering multiple lineups um, but i do think that one of the things with their setup is that with the second through fifth place bonuses being the same that sometimes you don't actually in some of the gpps being smaller you don't actually need the winner uh, in order to win the event and so having a couple guys kind of in there and it, seems like the the sort of stars and scrubs build is the way that most people have go uh, or most people go with their roster construction and so i think that um you know dk we're usually looking unless it's a really rare week we're looking at like 20 or 25 percent for the high end of ownership of the top end player and i think there are definitely tournaments uh, from my experience and interest in years as well but where you can get like if there's a guy who stands out you can get him at like 40 percent ownership or even higher on fanduel and so 
at that level, it's definitely always uh, makes some sense to differentiate. Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure who that guy would be this week. I think a lot of times you do see that on FanDuel when like Dustin Johnson is a pretty clear favorite. This week, I don't know if people will do that with Justin Thomas. Uh, he's he's the betting odds favorite kind of heading into the week, but he's missed two cuts out of the last three uh, appearances here and the one other time he finished third. So kind of a, a high vol uh, performance background for Thomas here. But the guys that you know our projections would kind of condense on, like Jordan Spieth, and Jason Day and Rory, you know, days days priced lower on DraftKings and people don't seem enthused early on. So I don't think the ownership will really carry over there. So I'm interested to see if it gets spread out amongst all these guys that are priced kind of similarly. It's inevitable that like one or two guys might fall through the cracks, but I don't have a good feel for who that would be um, early in the week. If you look a little bit further down the pricing spectrum, I do think there's more obvious value plays that the ownership on, you know, like we talked about Ryan Moore, who's projected for really high ownership on DraftKings. He's even cheaper on FanDuel. I'd imagine the ownership would follow over in a substantial way, but I think the fact that he's so much cheaper, he's 9,800 on FanDuel relative to, you know, all these other guys that are priced around him on DraftKings, like Daniel Berger's 11-1 on FanDuel. So he's $1,300 cheaper on FanDuel than a guy priced basically the same as him on DraftKings. Um, makes me more comfortable playing Ryan Moore, certainly from a cash game perspective. I would more strongly consider Ryan Moore on FanDuel than I would on DraftKings. And even on a tournament perspective, even if I think ownership's going to condense some, I'm more likely to have Ryan Moore ownership in general on FanDuel than I would on DraftKings. Yeah, and I think that makes sense. And it's also one of the benefits of playing multiple sites is just the ability to diversify off of some of these plays without doing it in like a suboptimal pricing structure. So, yeah, I think Ryan Moore, Russell Henley kind of pops as good value on both sites. And then I think Kevin Streelman pops as nice value as well. He looks like he could get lost maybe a tiny bit on DK. He's probably going to be a little bit higher owned on FanDuel. But I think those are a couple of the guys I would be looking to if I was going to build balanced rosters and balance might just mean you don't load up on two or three of the studs you just grab kind of one anchor guy and then um try to capture you know a, a couple top 10 finishes with some of the other guys and um and then maybe maybe you only have to punt uh one or two spots opposed to punting kind of three spots is is kind of the way i would be looking at things yeah and if you do want to go the punt route with some extreme salary relief players i mean you can build some fun teams on fanduel but it's generally like Three studs up top, one of those Moore or Henley guys, and then two kind of puntish guys is what looks like some of our optimals early on. Some of the guys that, that fall into the puntish range for us, Jason Kokrak down at 7,800 on Fandle. That's a wide pricing disparity from some of the other guys that he's usually priced around. The guys like, um, you know, Jamie Lovemark, or who's priced, you know, $1,000 more. Um, Andrew Landry at 7,500, uh, one of the cheapest guys on the slate. Anurban Lahiri and JJ Spawn at 77 and 7,600. Look like some of the better pure punt sources of salary relief if you want to build uh, some of those stars and scrubs lineups. Only a few minutes left here for, for this edition of Going for the Green with Daily Roto. Let's transition into some of the betting uh, stuff this week. I know we talked about some of our long shot T20 odds uh, that we nixed last week with, with Matthew Fitzpatrick. And, uh, and Jim Furyk, one of those going well, the other not so well. Um, in terms of our betting week last week, I think we did hit on some longer shot T20 guys. Uh, Steve Stricker, I think, got in there for us. We had Daniel Berger as one of the guys we were on last week. We didn't bet as many uh, head-to-head matchups. Uh, we got a little bit too lost in our own head-to-head matchups in our mini golf and our, our golf outings. Uh, this week, while we don't have head-to-head matchups posted just yet, we do have the top 20 tools and the odds-to-win tools uh, posted. Anybody catching your eye early in the week, Colin, on any of the betting sites is a good value. So there were a couple things that caught my eye. The first one is just some of these names that we bet are just... It, they make your stomach turn. Just awful. <laughs> but it's been it's been good. Like it's worked. It's just on Sportsbook the prices on some of these guys are so high that like they're not popping as values on Bet365 because they're priced more fairly, but we're getting a little bit of value out of them. Uh, Bill House was one of the guys who didn't make me want to throw up at plus 550 to T20 that I thought was a pretty good value and offers about $33 of expected return for a $100 wager. So that seemed like a guy that fit there. Um, and then from an outright perspective, there are actually a couple plus EV spots. Um, I think that both Grillo and Cantlay are uh, plus EV bets at uh, 50 to 1 and 31 respectively, if you believe 
the data golf model is implied odds to win are accurate. We've got them combined around 6.3% to win. And so I know betting outrights is a little bit more fun. Uh, I know Grillo and Cantlay are both going to be a struggle in DFS. And so it actually seems like, um, you know, the, the betting markets, we might be getting a more fair price on Grillo and Cantlay than we are in DFS. And so those would be two outrights that, um, we show as uh, plus EV, uh, nothing crazy, but about 20 to $25 each per $100 wagered. We also, on the outrights, we actually have some positive EV on one of the shorter odds, which you almost never see. And that's Jason Day at 18 to 1 at Bet365. If you can get Jason Day at 18 to 1, a little bit of expected value, not a lot. Uh, but about $4.50 on a, on a $100 bet there. So a little bit of expected ROI. And then, of course, Pat Perez, 125 to 1 on Bet365 uh, to win there. I, I think these odds on Pat Perez, like of, of those guys when we were looking through on DraftKings, the low 7K guys, he was the one that like I could just see him like I, he has the kind of like ability to go low that when he's rolling, I could see him win. Uh, this event, 125 to 1, feels really long for not that deep of a field in general. I would say he's like probably a top 35 golfer in this field. So that seems like a really, really decent, like long shot um, to me. And then I noticed in the T20, uh, in the make you want to throw up category, uh, Sean Stefani is 24 to 1 on Sportsbook to T20. Uh, maybe worth you know a fractional unit there. A lot of a lot of potential PPP <laughs> on Sean Stefani. Yeah, yeah. I thought I was just looking at the outrights too. Inside, he's like eight hundred to one in the outrights, and Ted Potter's four hundred to one. Hey, you know Ted Potter's won an event this year. Yeah. So it's it's one of the things that. <laughs> I think the data golf guys do a really good job uh, incorporating variance into their projections and into their modeling. And uh, that's why some of these names that are definitely not going to come through very often still pop. Um, but I was laughing when I saw Ted Potter on there because I was listening to a bet the process podcast the other week with Rufus Peabody. And he, he had mentioned betting Ted Potter at like a thousand to one for his for one of his PGA Tour victories. So um, maybe there is something to some of these grimy names, but um, that's why we like to stick to betting them in the, the T20s because you can put a little bit more of your bankroll down on it. Yeah, well, that'll do it for this week's edition of Going for the Green with Daily Roto uh, here on the FNTSY Fantasy Sports Network. If you are catching us on uh, iTunes, on, on one of the podca- podcast features, please drop us a, a review, rating and review, five stars if you will. Uh, that helps keep the content coming uh, to you at the affordable cost of free. Uh, that'll do it for this week's edition of Going for the Green with Daily Roto. For myself, Drew Dinkmar, and Colin Drew, we wish you guys the best of luck in all your games.